kingdom of the planet of the apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Imagine someone writes you a check. You take it to the bank, you cash it, deposit it, whatever. And then that check bounces. Now, you didn't write this check. You had no idea that it wasn't good. Well, up until today, banks across the country could charge you for that transaction. You would get charged a fee for being a victim of a fraud. That is just one of the laundry list of what President Biden is calling junk fees, fees that today Biden announced his administration is cracking down on. Have you ever shown up to the airport and had your flight canceled and then the airline tries to charge you a fee to rebook you on a new flight to replace the flight that they canceled? This thing happens. And Biden today is directing the Department of Transportation to make rules so that airlines can no longer do that. Have you ever gotten an Internet bill with just a CVS receipt size list of surprise fee fees tacked onto it? President Biden is directing the FCC to make a rule mandating that Internet service providers have to be transparent in their pricing up front. President Biden is telling the FTC, the FCC, the Department of Transportation, even the Federal Maritime Commission, he's telling all sorts of agencies across the U.S. government to seek out surprise fees and unfair charges and make them illegal. Altogether, this effort is expected to save Americans tens of billions of dollars a year. Now, most of those rules will not be finalized until around the end of this year. But two of them, the new rules about fees for cashing bad checks and another rule about banks charging surprise overdraft fees, those two new rules are in effect as of today. They are the work of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was essentially founded after the Great Recession to stop the exploitation of consumers. Instituting those two rules alone should save Americans more than a billion dollars a year. Now, you would think that something as common as common sense really as this would have at least a chance of being bipartisan. You'd think. But no. These are letters to the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. They're from last month. One is from the Republican senators who are likely to chair the Senate Finance Committee, the Appropriations Committee, and the Banking Committee, should Republicans win back the Senate in the midterms. The other is from the Republican congressmen who are likely to chair the House Financial Services and Oversight Committees, again, if the GOP takes back the House. Both of these letters are not shy about how much these Republicans hate the work of the CFPB. The House letter ends by saying they are going to use their committees to forcefully reassert control over the CFPB. And the Senate letter specifically defends surprise overdraft fees, which they call optional overdraft services. You cannot make this stuff up. Republicans are, I guess, for surprise overdraft fees. It's not something that I thought one could be for, but apparently they are. If Republicans control Congress, Following the midterms in 13 days, with Biden in the White House, we can expect crazy bills passed by Republicans to be vetoed. But even without the power to pass legislation, Republicans taking over even just the House would give them a ton of power to wreak havoc. They've already floated the idea of holding the debt ceiling hostage, and they've warned that Ukraine should not count on continued American support in the form of a, quote, blank check. 
They could obstruct basic legislation just to make Biden look weak, and they will almost certainly use their power to interrogate the Biden administration under the guise of congressional oversight to conduct investigations and possibly even impeachments. Some of that has always been expected. It is a generally accepted principle that a Republican-led House will gin up a new Benghazi 2.0 investigation as a way to fill Fox News airtime and sling mud at Democrats. The prospect of impeachment, well, we may want to listen to what Republicans are saying they're planning here. I don't know how Kamala Harris doesn't get impeached if the Republicans take over the House. Last Friday, Ralph Norman from South Carolina and I filed a resolution including impeachment articles for Secretary Blinken. It is time for action. Impeach Biden, impeach Kamala Harris, and throw in the Secretary of State if you can get him back from vacation. These are articles of impeachment on President Biden. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I said at the time, when we have a Democratic president and a Republican House, you can expect an impeachment proceeding. I'm introducing articles of impeachment on Merrick Garland. The House of Representatives needs to impeach Merrick Garland, and they need to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and we need to have trials in the United States Senate on their abuse of power. Do you expect an impeachment vote against President Biden if Republicans take over the House? I believe there's a lot of pressure on Republicans to have that vote, to put that that legislation forward and to have that vote. I think that is uh, something that some folks are considering. Wow. Wow, indeed. Barton Gelman at The Atlantic is out today with a new piece entitled The Impeachment of Joe Biden. And in it, he argues that, quote, sometime next year, after an interval of performative investigations, Republicans in the House are going to impeach Joe Biden. Now, that is a major assertion, but Barton Gelman has been right, and he has been right early about big things like this before. In September of 2020, in a piece entitled The Election That Could Break America, Gelman reported that the Trump campaign was discussing contingency plans to bypass election results and instead appoint loyal electors in battleground states where Republicans control the state legislature. With a justification based on claims of rampant fraud, Trump would ask state legislators to set aside the popular vote in their state and exercise their power instead to choose a slate of electors directly. Does that sound familiar? Trump claiming victory on election night, Trump claiming fraud when it started to look like he lost, and Trump using those fake fraud allegations to try to stop the counting of electoral votes. Gelman wrote about the plans for all of that in September of 2020 weeks before the election. So why does he now think Biden will be impeached by a Republican Congress? Joining me now is Barton Gelman, staff writer at The Atlantic and senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Bart, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I mean, uh, every time you publish something like this, I think it sends a chill down the spine of most Americans or perhaps those watching this television show and the person sitting at this desk. You see a strong correlation between election denialism and the lust for impeachment on the part of Republican voters. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's it's almost a mathematical relationship. Uh, If you believe uh, or profess to believe that the election was stolen, uh, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, and we know that about two thirds of all Republicans do believe that. Uh, then you're either joining a militia uh, to overthrow the government, or at the very least, you want to see him removed from office. 
Uh, and so impeachment is, is uh, correlating very closely uh, with, with the big lie. You have actually uh, uh, 68, I think, percent of mm-hmm. Republicans believe that Joe, Joe Biden uh, should be impeached and a majority believe that he will be impeached. Yeah, you you have a kind of if A, then B, then C, then D. If you believe the election was stolen, then at the at the end point of that is that Biden must ultimately at some point be impeached. In the same way, you talk about Kevin McCarthy, who could become Speaker of the House right now, does not say, at least openly, I'm going to impeach Joe Biden. But you also explain the host of various pressure points that are on would-be Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And I wonder if you could detail specifically where you think the most pressure will come from inside his caucus. Well, see, the interesting thing is I don't think Kevin McCarthy actually wants to impeach Joe Biden. Uh, The people who want to are uh, in the Freedom Caucus and uh, on the right of his uh, conference in Congress. But he has risen to where he is and uh, will if... uh, Republicans win the House, rise to Speaker of the House uh, on an explicit strategy of never fighting with the extreme right. Uh, he bows to everything they ask for. And people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Boebert, some of the others you showed on screen just a few minutes ago, uh, are uh, determined and bound and determined to impeach Joe Biden. And he is going to lose control of his agenda uh, to those folks. He um, has not proven himself to be one with a um, ramrod spine thus far, and that's being highly euphemistic. And to some degree, it is built in to today's modern Republican caucus that if you're the Speaker of the House, you will ultimately pledge fealty to the far right wing of the party. Witness Paul Ryan, witness John Boehner. They ultimately acquiesced, right? But you also detail like the Jim Jordan of it all, which is to say Jim Jordan, who could end up being the head of the House Oversight Committee, he you, you seem to outline a kind of battle of egos between who's going to be the, the the face of the impeachment movement, which could be political um, mana to Republican voters. Why does Jim Jordan eventually fall in line with this impeachment plot, to your mind? I actually think that's that's exactly the right question. And it is uh, going to be the key leverage point uh, is going to be in the office of Jim Jordan, because. It's expected that he will join uh, the committee leadership, that he'll run the Judiciary Committee, which is, by the way, uh, the committee that has jurisdiction over impeachments. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is therefore kind of part of McCarthy's leadership team at the moment. And so he's and he's got an institutional vested interest in making sure that uh, things go smoothly and according to plan. Uh, and he has been carefully hedging his co- public comments about impeachment, saying it would be, it would need to be something that the whole Republican conference could get behind uh, before they did that. Uh, but the problem for him is he has always wanted to be right on the front line of confrontation with Joe Biden and with the Democrats. And he's lived there pretty well, I will and say. He, uh, he has he has boxed out that terrain. Yeah. Uh, and he's not going to want to let himself be outflanked by Green, uh, by Boebert, by Matt Getz, uh and those folks. And as soon as impeachment starts to build up any kind of steam at all, he's going to realize that if he doesn't take control of it uh, and make sure to stake his claim as the committee chair, then it's going to get away from him. And that's when 
Ken McCarthy loses control of his caucus, that's when uh, he can no longer stop the push toward impeachment. The inexorable push towards impeachment. Now, people watching us discuss this might say, well, but you haven't even talked about what he could get impeached for. And what's interesting in the article is it's that that's the part of this that seems like it's the detail, right? It's not just it's really not a, an academic debate over what's an impeachable offense. It's just what vehicle can we use to get to this endpoint, which is the impeachment of President Joe Biden. But let us, for the purposes of um, a full explanation and um, recitation of this article, Explore those reasons why Republicans at present think they could impeach Joe Biden. I mean, you you outline a few. There's Hunter Biden. There's immigration policy. There's Afghanistan withdrawal. There's the moratorium on evictions that was issued over covid. And then there's Joe Biden tapping into the strategic petroleum reserve. Now, I'm not a constitutional scholar, Barton Gelman, but none of those things sound like they're impeachment worthy. Is that a consideration at all inside the caucus or according to the Republicans you spoke with? So you have to look at it uh, several ways on that. First of all, high crimes and misdemeanors mean whatever Congress wants it to mean. Uh, There's no legal standard that requires that a certain threshold be passed. Uh, None of the things that they've talked about so far rise to the level of an impeachable offense by historical standards. But that may not stop them. Uh, Ted Cruz said it almost doesn't matter uh, what grounds there are. He said he'll, he'll be uh, impeached, uh, whether justifiably or not, um, out of revenge, because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Right. If, they, if, if the Democrats uh, can weaponize impeachment, as Republicans see it, against Trump, uh, then there's no reason why Republicans can't do the same against Biden. Well, that's what this is at the end of it, right? It's revenge. And it's also, let's forget, let's not forget the, the motor in all of this is Donald Trump and the grievance machine that is Donald Trump and the revenge fantasist that is Donald Trump. How much do you think an indictment from Merrick Garland is going to play into the timing on all of this and the vigor with which Trump and his Republican allies pursue impeachment? A lot. Uh, if the if if the indictment does come, look, I don't anticipate impeachment coming uh, first quarter of the new year. Uh, Congress is seated on January third. They're going to go through a bunch of investigations. Uh, momentum will start to build. First of all, the base is going to demand it. If if the investigations find dirt on Biden, if the investigations hurt the president. Uh, then the base is going to want to go in for the kill and finish the job. Um, and if the investigations on their own don't hurt the president, then they're going to be doubly interested in impeachment uh, to remove him. And the one person who does have uh, the most control over uh, the Republican, Republican caucus is Donald Trump. Uh, I, I don't want to say that you know, one post on Truth Social controls the agenda. But if Trump decides uh, that he wants to see Biden impeached and he pushes for it uh, with the base behind him, uh, that's going to be a, a, an influence that uh, the Republican leadership in the House can't really resist. And it's going to, I think, come down to a precipitating event. And the one you mentioned is uh, certainly a likely one. If Trump gets indicted, He has already all but threatened that there would be violence on the street. Uh, But uh, he always deflects charges against him onto someone else. Yeah. 
Um, he uh, was humiliated by his own impeachment. Uh, it was a wound that his ego has not recovered from. Um, he will want to see the same thing happen to his successor. Uh, and yeah, I think if he's indicted, that would be a, a, a pretty strong moment to expect it. The terrifying certainty of Barton Gelman and his writing for The Atlantic. I um, I don't even know what to say, except thank you for um, alerting us to what may be our inevitable future. Barton Gelman, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for making time tonight. Thanks for joining me on set. Thanks for having me. Still ahead this hour, three men have been convicted of supporting a plot to kidnap Democratic Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel will join me live to talk about that and her race for re-election against an election denier. And how a brutal attack in Florida is drawing attention to the connections some Republicans in that state have to the far right. But next, we are officially less than two weeks out from Election Day and Democrats are worried about where they stand with voters of color. Guy Cecil from Priorities USA will join me to talk about what his group is doing to turn them out this election. Stay with us. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Gretchen Whitmer is Michigan tough. She doesn't back down and she gets the job done. Over the last few years, Governor Whitmer has moved Michigan forward. She's fought for tuition-free higher education and job skills training, paved the way for the first new car plant in Detroit in decades, and is leading on next generation battery and microchip manufacturing. Governor Whitmer is creating opportunities for all Michiganders to get ahead. And we can't let up, the stakes are too high. Governor Whitmer, keep moving Michigan forward. That was a new ad released yesterday with President Barack Obama stumping for Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and her reelection campaign. Obama will be campaigning with Whitmer at a get out the vote rally in Detroit this weekend, part of a pre-Halloween blitz from the former president who is set to hit the trail for Democratic candidates in Georgia on Friday and Wisconsin on Saturday. Dispatching the party's closer is a necessary strategy right now for Democrats who are worried about turning out their base and are particularly worried about turning out black voters, an essential part of the coalition. In a recent Politico morning consult poll, only 25 percent of black registered voters said they were extremely enthusiastic about voting in this election, 12 points lower than white voters and 10 points below Hispanic voters. As one Michigan Democrat told Politico, what I'm concerned about is there doesn't seem to be a lot of energy. So Democratic groups are trying to solve for this quickly. The democratically aligned group Priorities USA announced they've invested $7.8 million this cycle, specifically aimed at black voters in Pennsylvania, Arizona, 
Michigan, Nevada, Wisconsin, Georgia, and New Hampshire. The group spent another $4 million on engaging Latino voters. And they are on the airwaves in states like Michigan and Wisconsin, running ads targeted at black voters, ones that speak directly to some of the concerns of voters of color who feel left out or even taken advantage of by the Democratic Party. Like this ad, which speaks directly to the criticism that Democrats only ever ask their base to vote harder as Republicans continue to chip away at personal freedom and democracy. I'm tired of folks coming around telling us just vote. The truth is they're coming for our rights, our people, (laughs) you. So no, just vote won't fix everything, but that's no excuse to do nothing. So make a plan to vote today. Joining us now is Guy Cecil, chair of Priorities USA. Guy, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So what can you tell me, us, about why specifically Voters of color, black voters are not enthused about this election, especially at a moment when it feels like racism is on full display. The calls towards Christian national, white Christian nationalism and white supremacy are explicit. Um, why is there a lack of energy coming from this part of the Democratic base? Well, first, I think it's important to recognize that, as might be obvious, I don't speak for black voters. Of course. <laughs> but I think it's important to recognize that, you know, a year ago we saw actually 12, 14, 17 point differences between white and black voters on whether or not they were more or less enthusiastic than usual yeah. about this election. Over the course of this year, we've seen in our internal polling those numbers close to more like five, six, seven points, still a gap. But the reality is, in order for Democrats to be successful, we have to build a diverse, broad-based coalition, black, Latino, young, LGBTQ voters, white voters in many of these states. And many of those voters are, are online. Younger voters, younger black voters are online. And those are the folks that are most likely to be disengaged from politics. They don't think uh, politicians are doing enough for them. Uh, they are exhausted by politics. They yeah. saw what happened in 2020. They thought that they, and many voters, thought that they did what they needed to do in order to win and to have results delivered to them. And so it's our job to make sure we're not centering the candidates in our ads. We're centering the voters and trying to connect the things they care about with voting over the course of the next two weeks. That was almost an apologetic, like the strategy behind that was almost apologetic. Like, look, we know that you think we've taken you for granted, but this, you still kind of have to do this. I mean, just explain to me a little bit of the psychology of an ad like the one we just played. the, The most important thing that you can do is to treat voters like they are smart, thoughtful people who engage in their life in a meaningful way, in a thoughtful way, and not to tell them something they intuitively believe is not true. So our number one job is to meet voters, whether they are black, white, Hispanic, young, old, exactly where they are. And it's hard. Let's be clear. It's hard to find a Democrat or a Republican that's particularly happy with the way that our politics writ large is, is running for them, is working for them. And so our job is to meet people where they are, and to try to do what we can to tell them what the difference is between Democrats and Republicans. You know, as Joe Biden says, compare me to my opponent, not to the almighty. And that's a lot of what our advertising is trying to do. Yeah. I mean, you literally say they're coming. They're coming for you. Your advocate yes. in that ad says they're coming for you. An yes. explicit sort of existential uh, stake. That's right. Uh, what how has abortion played among, you know, as you look at Democratic voters, it looks like there are different ways to talk about abortion to different different subsets of the Democratic electorate. And when it comes to Hispanic voters and when it comes to black voters, how are you seeing those trend lines different or how are you seeing the data different 
than it, the, the way in which Democrats talk to white voters, white women. Sure. You know, one of the things I think that people have been misreading in the public polling is, you know, you ask a question, what, what issue is most important to you? And the economy usually comes first and crime might come in second or abortion might come in second or third. And so people think, therefore, that abortion is not going to be a deciding factor in this election. Yeah. The reality is when you look at every poll since the initial leak of the Dobbs decision, what we have found is an increased enthusiasm by black and Latino voters because of the decision. And also because the decision, it, it fits in line with what many of these voters believe about Republicans, mm-hmm. that, that they are extreme. Extremists attack the Capitol. Extremists want to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. Extremists uh, want to make sure that the government cannot negotiate prescription drug prices. Extremists want to control a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. And so this fits into a pattern that they intuitively understand about Republicans. Of course, there are going to be conservative Latinos who might have a different view about choice in the same way there are conservative whites that have. But but our job is to make sure we are connecting the choice issue with the larger fight between Democrats and Republicans, that they are extremists at every turn and fail to take into account the views of black Latino, LGBTQ, young, and frankly, white voters around the country. So you're saying abortion is like a proof point in the argument rather than the argument itself. It's both. For many people, obviously, it's a core argument. But for others, it is another way for us to connect the extremism of the Republican Party with other issues. If you believe that Republicans are extreme about choice and about controlling the right of a woman over her own health care, you're also more inclined to believe that they would do things like keep prescription drug prices high. These are all interconnected. They're not separated in the way that I think we think about polling. Well, I I don't know that we think about them as separated so much as I'm not sure. Do you feel like Democrats in this midterm season have been making the kind of broader argument about extremism? Because it feels, at least from the ads we've seen and the spending we've seen, that they're focused more explicitly on the abortion issue itself. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm just trying to understand the way in which you think that that's been folded into this broader narrative. There's no question that the issue of choice on its own has been a primary message from Democrats. But I think added together with all of these other issues, it helps us affirm a primary intuitive argument about the Trump Republican Party, which is they are extremists about a whole range of issues. And this is just another thing, another thing they're going to do to make your life more difficult. I also think, by the way, just as an aside, it's important to recognize that the way that you know how Republicans think they can win this election is how they're spending their money. Yeah. So the Senate Leadership Fund, Mitch McConnell's PAC. Yeah. When you look at how they're spending against John Fetterman, Guess what they're spending about? It's about taxes and the economy. When they're spending on Mandela Barnes or Sherry Beasley. It's about crime. It's about crime. Now, explain to me why the majority of money being spent against white Senate Democrats is on the economy and the majority of money being spent against black Senate Democratic candidates is on crime. Riddle me that. I think I know the answer. (laughs) Race-based strategy, also known as racism. Yes. Guy Cecil, Chair of Priorities USA. Thanks for your time and your thoughts, Guy. Thanks for having me. We have much more ahead this hour. The conviction of three Michigan men for their role in a plot to kidnap a Democratic governor is part of the backdrop for this consequential election in November. The attorney general whose office secured those convictions is fighting to retain her seat and retain the rule of law in Michigan. She joins me to talk about that and more. But next, one story out of Florida this week is drawing attention to the ties between members of the Florida GOP and some far right activists and white supremacists. Stay with us. 
kingdom of the planet of the apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. There is increasingly national attention on a terrible story out of Florida in which it appears that a guy who was out doing political canvassing, handing out flyers and that sort of thing, that he was attacked and beaten up in Miami-Dade County. The reason this has gained national attention is because of a tweet from Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, who shared what he said were photos of the victim of the attack wearing a Rubio campaign shirt. Rubio claimed in his tweet that the victim had been attacked because he was a Republican canvasser. Now, the senator appears to have gotten a little bit out in front of the known facts on this one. The police have two men in custody for the attack, and they have said there was no indication it was politically motivated. Obviously, it is a terrible thing either way. No one should be attacked physically while canvassing. No one should be physically attacked, period. But once Marco Rubio put those pictures of the canvasser out on social media, it opened up this whole other story about Florida politics. Because local journalists saw that guy's picture and they said, Hey, wait a second. Don't we know that guy? CBS 4 News is learning more about a man we first reported on after he was attacked in Hialeah on Sunday. We first interviewed Christopher Monzone of Hialeah in 2017. We were covering a story about changing the names of street signs that honored Confederate generals and one-time leader of the KKK. This is Monzone holding a Confederate flag. He got into a shouting match with the crowd. And it led to this. Police arrested Monzone and charged him with aggravated assault, inciting a riot and disorderly conduct. Yes, that is Christopher Monzone, the victim of this week's attack, charging in a crowd with a Confederate flag in 2017. A few days earlier, he had been at the infamous white supremacist Unite the Rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Here he is at that rally, pledging to die for the South and repeating the rally's mantra, they will not replace us. Mr. Monzone has his own page on the website of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate groups, including the white supremacist group League of the South, of which Monzone was a member. The things he posted on social media in 2017 about African-Americans and Jewish people are so vile, I am not going to share them with you. And all of this, as far as we know, has nothing to do with the violent attack that Mr. Monzone suffered this week, an attack that has been roundly condemned as it should be. But the publicity that Marco Rubio brought to this guy, who Rubio says was canvassing for his campaign, has led to the revelation that Christopher Monzone was on the payroll of the Florida Republican Party through at least last month. The Florida GOP paid Christopher Monzone over $10,000 over the last several months. 
Why is this white supremacist Unite the Right rally charging at people with Confederate flags guy? Why is he on the payroll of the Florida Republican Party? We've reached out to the Florida GOP and to Marco Rubio's campaign to ask them that, and we have not heard back. But maybe it's because folks with that kind of history are increasingly finding a home in the Florida Republican Party. The New York Times reported this summer about the tightening grip that groups like the Proud Boys have been gaining on the Miami-Dade GOP. Along with several Proud Boys, Christopher Monzone himself, until recently, was a member of the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee. He claimed to the Times that he has been on a path to de-radicalization and has disavowed his previous racist ideology. But when Monzone ran unsuccessfully for city council last year, he maintained his online ties to the white supremacist League of the South. And the Miami New Times reports that when members of the media were invited by Monzone and his family to interview him at the hospital this week, they were blocked from Monzone's room by Proud Boys. So again, there are still a lot of questions to be answered about this awful, violent attack this week. The police are investigating. There have been arrests. Maybe we will eventually know whether Senator Rubio's claims that this was a politically motivated attack. Maybe we will eventually know whether those claims are accurate. But separate and apart from that, there are also questions that need to be answered about why a guy with a violent white supremacist history is being paid by the Florida Republican Party. Florida GOP. You okay? These are the first convictions under Michigan's anti-terrorism law and also a victory for the rule of law and the safety of all Michiganders. The prosecution of these uh, cases prevented horrific acts from taking the lives of innocent people. My office will not simply sit idly by and watch while armed terrorists plan acts of civil unrest with the intent of causing mayhem. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel today thanked the prosecutors from her office who successfully tried a case against three men accused of assisting the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Today, after a three-week trial, they were all found guilty of gang membership, firearm violations, and materially aiding terrorism. They'll be sentenced in December, and each one of them faces up to 20 years in prison. If you remember, these men were members of an anti-government group called the Wolverine Watchmen, who, yes, wanted to help kidnap the Michigan governor over COVID health protocols. And they also wanted to start a civil war or a boogaloo after the summer of Black Lives Matter protests in 2020. Those men were among the 14 arrested in October of 2020. Those were the men Nestle's office spent two years building a case against. And those are the men who will finally face some jail time, maybe setting an example for other Civil War-enthused watchmen. So what Nestle and her office did here is a big deal. It is also a big deal that she is up for re-election in less than two weeks and that she is not guaranteed to win. The most recent Detroit Free Press poll has Nestle ahead of her Republican opponent by just four points, which is a significant drop from her nine-point lead in September. Now, her opponent, by the way, is an attorney named Matt DiPerno, a Trump-endorsed election denier who is currently under criminal investigation by the Michigan Attorney General's office for his efforts to substantiate false claims of 2020 election fraud. Yes, you heard that right. Matt DiPerno is running for the office that is currently considering charging him for a crime. And he has promised to prosecute people like Dana Nessel if he wins. And the odds of him winning are not slim. Attorneys general across the country are prosecuting some of the most important cases in the nation. 
and many of them are up for re-election in November. Like in Minnesota, where residents are still struggling with the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, the Democratic incumbent, Attorney General Keith Ellison, is up for re-election. Ellison's office prosecuted former officer Derek Chauvin for murdering Floyd, securing the state's first conviction of a white officer for murdering a black person. Ellison's opponent, Jim Schultz, is running on a platform criticizing Ellison for the reform policies he endorsed after Floyd's murder. Schultz has accused Ellison of supporting funding cuts for police, which he says increases crime. Those two men are currently tied. In Texas, Republican State Attorney General Ken Paxton is running for re-election. You might recall that he's the guy who led the effort to try to get the Supreme Court to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The Texas State Bar then sued Ken Paxton for professional misconduct. This is the man who is running against Democrat Rochelle Garza, former ACLU attorney. A recent Dallas Morning News poll shows Garza seven points below Paxton, so it looks like Ken Paxton is going to run away with this one. The stakes here are high for the entire country. Election experts worry that Paxton maintaining his seat as Texas's chief law enforcement officer could spell real trouble if Trump runs again in 2024. These races are a big deal. They will determine who the top law enforcement officials are in each of these states, who can bring criminal and civil suits for the state, who can potentially challenge election results like Ken Paxton did in 2020. Election day is in 13 days. Joining us now is Dana Nessel, Michigan Attorney General, whose office prosecuted the three men convicted today. Attorney General Nessel, thank you so much for being here tonight. And let me just first congratulate you on securing these convictions, uh, bringing wrongdoers to justice. I have to ask you, as someone who was involved in this plot to kidnap uh, the governor so early on, I, I think of that as kind of the preamble to January 6th, this idea that an armed group of, of radicals were going to capture uh, prominent officials who weren't doing their bidding and otherwise stoke violence and mayhem uh, in terms of policies as a retribution for policies they didn't like. Do you think the country paid enough attention to what was happening in the state of Michigan just months before the election? Well, I said that even before that occurred in uh, on April 30th of 2020, you remember that armed uh, individuals took over our state capital in Lansing. And as it turns out, that was really a meeting place for many of these individuals who later became involved in the plot to kidnap and assassinate Governor Whitmer. Uh, and also many people who were involved in the events at our nation's capital on January 6th of 2021. So, yeah, I think a lot of that originated in Michigan, um, but it's permeated throughout the United States. The implications here for someone like Matt DiPerno taking over the AG's office in a state like Michigan, where I believe, I mean, there are two to three dozen militia groups headquartered in the state. Can you paint a picture of what the implications are to have someone else, not you, in charge of what could be a hotbed of domestic terrorism? Well, it's not just anyone else. I mean, we're talking about a person uh, who has called these proceedings a sham, even though, you know, these convictions were in Jackson County, which is a very red county. But the jurors understood that this was not just a threat to Governor Whitmer. It was a threat to all people in my state. I mean, these are individuals that wanted to cause mayhem and murder and chaos, and not just to members of our government but also to law enforcement, local law enforcement as well. They weren't Republicans. They weren't Trumpsters. 
uh, they were anti-government insurrectionists who wanted to do as much damage as possible. But that being the case, my uh, opponent has said that he believes the FBI orchestrated all of this. And in fact, he's called the members of the Wolverine Watchmen Antifa, uh, which we all know, of course, is ridiculous. But the concern I have is this. We still have five more defendants to be tried in Antrim County. And I think my opponent has made it very clear that if he succeeds me, you know, he'll dismiss those cases. And I think he'll abolish my hate crimes and domestic terrorism unit in its entirety, which is needed more now than ever. Let me ask you one one more question about the implications here, because we're looking at an election that could see a historic, a record number of election deniers elected into positions as secretary of state. We're talking about election deniers as attorneys general. Uh, What is your expectation for the post-November landscape? First of all, there could be cries of election fraud. But in terms of enabling groups that want to see institutions undermined, that would like to change our democratic way of life, if you will, I mean, what are you girding yourself for, especially in a state like Michigan? I can't have uh, someone who is an attorney general, the top law enforcement officer in our state, be as lawless as the person that I'm running against who seeks to undermine democratic elections and undermine the will of the voters uh, and who doesn't respect the law himself. You know, Um, call me old fashioned, but I think that an attorney general should prevent and prosecute acts of domestic terrorism, not support and encourage them. Dana Nessel, Michigan attorney general, we will keep a close eye on your race. Thank you so much for your time. We have one more story to get to tonight. Remember Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' recent political stunt, flying Venezuelan migrants up to Martha's Vineyard? Well, it is coming back to bite him in a most spectacular fashion. That is next. Stay with us. And now an update from the strange parallel universe of Governor Ron DeSantis' Florida. It has not yet been a week since a judge dismissed charges in one of the 20 voter fraud cases DeSantis announced with considerable fanfare this summer. But today, another court is slapping down the governor's attempts to hide the details behind another one of his pet projects, migrant flights. A judge ruled that Governor DeSantis violated the state's public records law by withholding information linked to those flights from Texas to Martha's Vineyard in September. Those flights have attracted a lot of attention and record requests and lawsuits, especially about how those flights were coordinated, seeing as the migrants came from an entirely different state, Texas. When the governor turned over some documents last week, we learned that his chief of staff and his public safety czar worked together to plan the September 14th transport of 50 Venezuelan migrants. And now, thanks to the judge's order, we will get to see more phone and text logs from the governor's chief of staff and presumably learn even more. The judge has given Governor DeSantis 20 days to hand those logs over, dismissing arguments from the governor's attorneys that they should be allowed to turn them in on December 1st. According to a previous record request, December 1st is also the new proposed date by which the transport of another 100 migrants could take place from Florida to Delaware or Illinois or some other state where Democratic presidents have come from. Apparently, Governor DeSantis wanted to restart these migrant stunts much sooner, on October 3rd. Why the delay? We don't know yet, but stay tuned. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. 